Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Another exciting night in the Cisco and Falzone Hour. Broadcast and politics. We're back again. Tonight we have a special guest. Boots in the ashes, busting bombers, arsonists. Her her name is Cynthia Beach. She is a retired senior special agent with the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms, also known as ATF. She'll be here in a couple of minutes. So um, exciting show. Um, can't wait for her to come on. But so many things are happening in the world. But number one topic in the world, unless you're living in a cave and you have not had any contact with anyone, but at least if you do have a distance of six feet, you know, we have this social distance that now we are applying or, or we're trying to apply. So just tell your um, hubby or girlfriend that, or your wife that, for the meantime, you're going to have to sleep in separate, separate quarters because the coronavirus is attacking everywhere. That's trying to be somewhat sarcastic. But, uh, but what's not sarcastic and what's not funny is the fact that today, 427 individuals died in Italy, which brings the count to 3,405. That's outrageous. They have overtaken China, but again, you, we know that China doesn't really provide the real actual records, uh, numbers of people, because they're a communist country. So I would say that the situation in Europe is at a crisis mode. I mean, I mean the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, declared that we are in, in a global pandemic, and which I truly believe, because as many folks that keep constantly saying that we're, you know, this is just the flu, well, the flu has never shut down governments. The flu has never shut down borders. The flu has never shut down sports events. I mean, tourism. This is a very unusual virus, and it's having a a global impact. Schools are closed. The state of Kansas just closed school for the rest of the year. Um, in San Francisco, good old the liberal, liberal utopia of the world. Well, one of them. Again, trying to be sarcastic here. Um, for three weeks, you, gotta, you, get stay, you get to stay home and watch Hulu and Netflix because you can't go out. You could order. They'll bring it to you. But unless you're an essential staff, I mean, essential worker, you get to stay, keep your ass home. Eat on that popcorn and eat and use your toilet paper at the same time. For those who actually um, have a lot of toilet paper in their homes. Now, the latest statistics is we have 220,000 people that have been confirmed with COVID-19 the more refined way of saying coronavirus, because people get confused with the corona beer. Unbelievable. Why would you consider and confuse coronavirus with corona beer? But, hey, some people do. 84,000 have recovered. Miracle. 8,000 have died. So... That's the latest report. And I know we are involved in this media frenzy with uh, media hysteria. Um, but I, th- I think Dow- Donald Trump has, is doing a great job. I think the Republicans are doing a great job. I think overall, the, uh, I, I'm glad that the, the Congress was able to um, go ahead and, and, and take care of some of the uh, 
stimulus packages for for um, individuals. I think that's going to be that's going to help us at the end, and um, the American people will basically be very very happy once our economy is booming. But I would say that we are in, in, a, in a lot better shape than a lot of these countries, and I think we'll, we'll, we will make it through. I mean, I know we will, because we are a resilient culture. Anyway, let me bring on Cynthia B. Uh, she should be uh, coming on right now. Hold on. Hello? Cynthia, how are you? Great, thank you. Well, I'm glad. I, I have to extend my appreciation for you taking your time to come on our show tonight uh, on the Cisco Falzone Hour. My co-host is not available tonight, but I'll be taking the whole the whole show and, 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 and run it, running with it. So um, I'm glad you're here. And um, welcome. Can you... Give us a little synopsis uh, of your background. A little, uh, I basically in- gave you an introductory uh, of what you have done, but maybe you can extend it more. Um, okay, I didn't hear. Um, oh, what okay, you I thought you were okay. So basically, I said, said. That, that you're you're basically a, a retired senior special agent with the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And you spent right. 27. So um, anything else um, that the audience would be uh, interested in, in, in knowing about you? Okay. And then quick question. Are we going to be on live or is this being recorded? No, this is – we're live. We're live on the oh. air. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, my mistake. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, I investigated bombings and arson and a lot of gun cases and uh, – um, uh, I wrote my book is primarily about bomb and arson cases um, and serial bombers and the Hell's Angels and uh, murder uh, and um, I, I, I had an interesting career. I was one of the first women to be a federal agent, a, a female ATF agent, and one of the um, first agents at all who were, was in a bomb and arson group. Um, But I also lived through uh, an unusual time of history, which is um, right as the laws were changing and women were being hired, um, I came on the job. And so I was one of the first to do quite a few different things. Uh, I was the first woman to be top gun at the ATF Academy, for example. Fantastic. And how did you get involved? I mean, did you, when you were in high school, did you have, an idea that you wanted to go into law enforcement uh, or it was, it was it something that just came out of nowhere and you, and you said, okay, you know, wh- wh- how did that start? How did, how did, how did Cynthia say, well, I want to go into law enforcement. I want to be the first woman or did it just happen by coincidence? Um, more by coincidence in the sense that when I was in high school, there really weren't, any women police officers and women federal agents. So um, it, it really wasn't something that I could aspire to. Um, and then I had I studied English literature in college, and I, I have a master's in journalism. And But by the time I was in my mid-20s, um, the federal agencies and police agencies were starting to hire women more, or at least a little bit, and I ended up hearing uh, that the FBI was hiring women, and I looked uh-huh. into that. And um, to make a long story short, instead of the FBI, I ended up with ATF. But it was it was basically being in the right place at the right time. Got it. And and how was it? How were, how were you treated initially? Since at that time, I, I'm I'm assuming that at that time there were very few women that that were in ATF very few women in law enforcement. So how, 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 how were you received by, by the male-dominated uh, ATF? Well, when I first came on the job, my office uh, was all white men. I, I was the only woman in the office for a time uh, as an agent. There were women secretaries. 
And I was very fortunate in that my supervisor had had a very good supervisor uh, who was well-respected by all the other guys, and he believed that women should have the right to be agents. And because he was such a good supervisor and so well-respected, that made it much easier for me. There were still some men um, who didn't believe at all that either women or minorities should ever be federal agents. I had two different men uh, very politely tell me that women could never succeed as agents. (laughs) But most of the guys really, yeah, they sat me down and they said, look, white men will never listen to women or minorities and you don't belong here. Um, But uh, happily, they were wrong. So So you, you didn't, you didn't fit the boys club uh, type. Definitely. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, And, and so, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I was just going to, I mean, it's, it's that macho, uh, all style mentality. I mean, because, you know, what a lot of these men don't, uh, they forget is that it was a mother that went through eight months, eight, nine months before they gave birth, you know, and, and I always love, I mean, I love my mother. I love my father, but I love my mother also a lot because, hey, she put up with me for nine months, you know, and then after that. I couldn't have said anyone, it any better. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I definitely, um, I, I always consider myself a very uh, a modern man, you know, because it's definitely not, I don't have that mentality that, you know, women cannot do this. Women, women are smarter than men in a lot of ways. And uh, I, I have a, a great admiration for women and uh, at all levels. You know, one, one of the things that I follow, I, I do some private investigations too. Uh, so not at the ATF level, but more uh, on the uh, uh, insurance fraud level. And the investigation fascinates me. And I'm also, I know you've been on 48 hours and, and, uh, uh different mainstream media uh, settings. And one of the things that, that um, fascinates me is just the, the, the way the process of investigation. I think one of the, one of the cases that really fascinate, fascinates me and uh, still does is the Tekzinski, uh the Unabomber. The Unabomber, yeah. uh, how, how, how does... If you're if you're if you're sitting there and you're profiling someone who's who, like Ted Kaczynski, how how do you how do you come down to the conclusion? You know, what, what is the type? You know, this 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 picture, this profile uh, of of what uh, a, a bomber is. Uh, that that's a very good question. It's a it's a little bit of a complicated question. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I'll I'll be brief though. Um, Initially, when you're searching for a serial bomber, you you look at how he, and they're virtually all men, how he builds the bomb because it has its own signature, and and that will reveal to you quite a bit about his background um, and what techniques does he know, for example, on on building a bomb. But also you look at his targets uh, and you do your best to, to... Try to figure out his motivations. Um, so you're 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 building from the ground up, from the bomb, from the targets, and you, you see where that leads you. Right, but I think in the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, with Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, this was an individual that was not. I mean, he came from a very good background. Uh, you know, upper middle class went to good school, and then you know, from the transition from that type of individual, a good upbringing, to living in a cabin in the middle of Montana, in the middle of the woods in Montana, it totally, you know, it just blows me away that whole transition, uh, how he went from one extreme to another extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't write about him in my book, so um, and. Uh, I, I do know about that case, but I haven't looked into it for quite a few years, so I don't. Um, I'm a little okay. hesitant to, to tell you about oh, yeah. him per se, oh. but so, sometimes. But you, um, go ahead. No, you can go with one of your cases uh, oh. in the book, yeah. Well, if you want. I had one serial bomber um, who 
thankfully we caught him before he could continue on to become a type of perhaps perhaps a Unabomber um, type. Uh, and he turns out he was diagnosed later as paranoid schizophrenic. He was also quite bright. Um, now, I don't want to say it. I'm not trying to say that all serial bombers are paranoid schizophrenic. I don't mean that at all. Um, all I'm trying to say is sometimes there are uh, perhaps, um, first of all, to be a serial bomber, you, you've got to be off anyways. Um, but mm-hmm. the, there are um, usually some kind of some kind of a mental disturbance. Let me put it that way. That's probably not the correct medical term, but I don't know the correct medical term. But but some kind of a mental aberration that would cause anyone to do this in the first place. Right. Uh, some traumatic experience uh, that could also, in my opinion, and I'm not a, again. I'm not a doctor. But I would think that traumatic experience may may change the way someone's personality and, 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 and mental stage may lead them to go in a different direction. It it certainly can, uh, and in every case, each each uh, bomber or or defendant, whatever the the uh, crime might be, you know, you have to look at them as an individual uh, because. You know, everyone has their own story, and that's a big part. You you were talking about the process of investigation and so on. That is a big part um, of the investigation is trying to figure out the the bad guy's story. Um, Sometimes you know who it is and as an investigator, and the issue isn't who committed this, this crime. It's proving you know who it is, and you just have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and that's actually fairly common, where all the evidence is pointing to a certain suspect, but you don't yet have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and that's quite often the investigations that ta- take a long time, because you know it's John Doe, and you you just have to keep accumulating enough evidence, because proof beyond a reasonable doubt is a very high standard, as it should be. Right. Um, it's not all that common to have a case where you really, as an investigator, you have absolutely no idea who committed a crime or why. That's actually not very common in my experience. I don't mm-hmm. think I came upon those cases uh, more than a handful of times. Usually, uh, whether the motivation is money, it, that's a very common motivator, or um, hatred or uh, revenge, there's usually a tie to a serious crime, I'm not talking about a petty crime, but to a serious crime, there's usually a tie that you can find. Right. Are we seeing less uh, types of Unabombers now than we did during the 60s and the 70s during the hippie revolution and uh, into the weather, the weather underground uh let me see. I was a kid, but I still remember hearing my my dad talking about it. Where we had the Symbionized Liberation Army, mm-hmm. uh, all these these uh, underground uh, anti uh, government forces. You know, then we had mm-hmm. the Branch Davidians uh, in mm-hmm. in uh, in Waco, Texas. I I've noticed that we're not hearing or seeing. Is that because it's not as important, uh, or what? What uh, the trend has changed because in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, you would hear more about it. But what's your take on it? Well, that's a good question, and uh, no, trust me, those groups are still out there, um, uh, and may, maybe right at the moment there, there isn't one particular group that that jumps to to the public's mind, but. Um, you know, um, underground organizations like you're talking about uh, exist all over the country. And our job as, as federal law enforcement is to try to stop them before they commit serious crimes. Um, and we do keep track of them, and not just ATF, but uh, state and federal, state and, and local agencies try to keep track of these organized groups that are um, 
intent upon committing serious crimes. Uh, it's a constant battle. We're constantly working on uh, accumulating information and and trying to stay a step ahead of them, and we cannot always succeed. There's there's larger groups like the Weather Underground, like you were saying, and the Symbionese Liberation Army, and then mm-hmm. there are individuals, you know, like you were talking about with the Unabomber, um, and and those are usually uh, quite quite different uh, mindsets, but the the groups they are out there. So I don't want people to think that uh, they have gone by the wayside. They are out there, and we are working on them, and we stay on top of them. Okay, yeah, it's. It's definitely. Uh, I mean, we had also the um, the. Oh, it was in New York. I'm from New York City, and uh, the uh, what was his name? I, I can't think of his name, but he. It was in the 70s, and he he was basically he was a serial killer too, um, and really son of um, Sam. that son of Sam, correct? Yeah. And that was yeah. that was another. David so Berkowitz did, was his name. David did ATF was ATF involved in 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 in, in the uh, David Berkowitz um son of Sam case? Wow, I I don't I that was long before I became an agent and I I don't okay. know not that I know of um I just happen to be familiar with that case a little bit and I remember it um I I do remember that you know obviously that terrified New York City for. Yes, it did. Months and months and months, and as it should have. Um, uh, but I never, uh, as far as I know, ATF was not part of that case. But that was, again, that was long before my time. Right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to um, gangs. The, ATF, the role of ATF uh, with gangs also, it's, it's, it's similar or is, is it a different approach um, with major gangs? We can we have... We got the low-level gangs, and then we have the the major gangs. I mean, uh, from the hell's Angels, I consider the hell's Angels like top of the gang level, mm-hmm. like tier one, mm-hmm. tier yeah. one, and then we got uh, tier two and tier three, which is probably the uh, uh, the Bloods and the Crips, Latin Kings, and then all, some of the white supremacy groups. Uh, where do you ATF? Where do, does ATF look? as a priority, which has a higher priority? The Bloods well, and the Crips or, Land, or, or, or the Hells Angels and, and the Banditos and some of these uh, uh, biker gangs? Well, there's no um, strict protocol. There's no ranking. Um, each, each okay. for example, let's just say the Hells Angels might be more active, let's just say, in the San Francisco Field Division, um, but, and the Crips and Bloods more active. Uh, in the Chicago Field Division, um, potentially. But um, there, that is one good thing about federal agencies. There tend to be enough agents that we can have active investigations into most, if not all, of these gangs at any one time. Um, and they, uh, they really they ebb and flow um, in terms of, of their, their violence at any one time. Quite, quite often the gangs... Uh, collapse from within for a time. In other words, there'll, there'll be uh, people within the gang who want to challenge the president, and so the, the gang will itself will go into turmoil for, a while, turmoil for a while, and they will be less effective uh, or you know less damaging to the public, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, and then they might spring back with a vengeance. So uh, it, it really, they, they, their, uh, their danger kind of uh, changes depending on where they are and who who is in command of any certain gang at any certain time. Right, right. They're they're like they're like the terrorist groups. They they basically they, they don't there's no chain of command. They're basically cells all over. So this way if one gets knocked down, uh, it 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 doesn't impact the whole uh, the whole gang. So it makes it it makes it even more challenging for for law enforcement, especially ATF, right? Well, yeah, ATF is is tasked with um, fighting violent crime in general. I mean that that is far and away our our biggest goal is to fight violent crime, and that's done primarily through gun cases and gangs, and then also with bombings and arson um, investigations, and. Gangs uh, in general have splintered more than than they 
they were, for example, 20 years ago. They and they did have some kind of a structure more than 20 years ago. And and what happened is younger gang members got tired of working so hard for so little pay to to go to the um, the bosses, and they started to branch out on their own. And so then they started to fight from within. And right. so there's there's no longer these really large, or, or there are very few of these really large gangs with almost a military-style command nowadays. Uh, they, they're broken up into smaller units. Got it. Now, does ATF get involved? Because we had a guest here uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she indicated that, you know, she worked in the correctional facilities in, in, in one of the East, East Coast states and that the gangs are very, very involved in the prison system with drugs. Uh, does ATF tackle that or is that totally not in their jurisdiction or uh, specific goals of gangs? That's usually um, prisons are, are generally speaking handled by the Bureau of Prisons. We do keep up to date on there. There definitely are gangs in prisons, and they have their own language. For example, we would once a year or so we would we would be brought up to date on the the lang- language and the lingo and the um, uh, that that gangs are were using in the prison at any one time because we would then see them on the streets. Right. So, uh, particularly people who were gang experts w- had to keep up with that, and they did. But generally speaking, the Bureau of Prisons handles uh, people who are currently inmates. Right. So ATF doesn't tackle any any issues with uh, gangs running, uh, selling drugs, and, and within the prison system. No. Um, now, there, I suppose there might be uh, once or twice I did interview. Uh, guys who were already in prison as, and they they had information primarily on gun cases that were uh, going on that they had known about before they went into prison but no ATF in general does not handle uh, prisoners and their crime and, and certainly not, not drug crime. I mean we do work drugs as long as it's in conjunction with guns but uh, drugs on their own that's, that's usually either DEA or, or a different agency. Right. So, okay. Uh, it's it appears that a lot of these uh, gangs, uh, the biker gangs, they're mm-hmm. into traffic trafficking meth. Is that something mm-hmm. that you guys? Oh yeah. Get? Oh yeah. Yes. Well, yes. And it's. Uh, I did several investigations on that, and uh, you're absolutely right. They are big into meth. And trafficking meth, and it's a very and, dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, I think there's a connection between now the bikers, uh, like the Hell's Angels and the Banditos and all that, with uh, building that relationship with the, the Mexican cartels, the different cartels out there. Uh, so when when would ATF step in to confront these these uh, highly sophisticated organizations like the cartels? Well, certainly um, in any investigation where where guns and weapons play a significant part, we can get involved at, at, any, at any point, and we often do. Um, usually if it becomes, unless it's strictly guns, if it becomes a larger investigation and it's a large narcotics cartel, we often will end up working that with another federal agency or, or the state and locals, you know, whether it's DEA or uh, if you're in California, the California State Police. Quite often, uh, big cases do end up as part of a task force. Not, not always, but uh, we, can, we can become involved anywhere we find guns uh, or, or bombs or anything like that. So we can step in when it's just one biker, you know, uh, illegally selling a firearm or illegally buying a firearm or, and then that can grow into a large trafficking case, firearms trafficking case, for example. 
Um, right. So we can get in there anywhere along that, that pipeline there, and we do. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now, this whole um, – I don't know if you, if you were retired already or you were still – when this whole, happened during the Obama administration, the Fast and Furious – uh, where they found a lot of weapons that were being trafficking to the cartels in Mexico. And under, I think it was under, yeah, Eric Holder. And a lot of the Mexican government and even the Mexican people were saying, listen, all these weapons are basically American-based, uh, American-made, and they were, you know, they're, they're responsible for the, for the numerous multitude of killings in Mexico. How did how 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 would that happen? Well, I do I do know about Fast and Furious. I mean, uh, I I know of it. I was an agent at the time. It was out of the Phoenix office, and I was in Chicago at the time. Um, so uh, I, I I don't know about it personally. I do know that it was heavily investigated by Congress. Um, mm-hmm. I can tell you, without a doubt, it, it was, at its core, it, it, it was meant to be, n- no one in, intended for it to end up the way it, it did. It, it was not, uh, people... I, People who ran the operation were trying to do the right thing. They, it wasn't. It it didn't end up being that way. But it's not their their motives were trying to do the right thing. It would, they ended up using the wrong means to uh, to to execute it. But they it wasn't uh, meant to end up the way it did. I, I don't. I I don't fault the 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 agents, even the ATF. Uh, or any uh, law enforcement. I, th- I think that was more, more of a, more. I would come down more on on, on that administration that basically allowed that to happen. Well, it was very unusual. Even yeah. you know, even in Chicago when I and I was very busy at the time. I remember that I was working very hard on other cases, and even hearing about it in Chicago, it was um, confusing to us because it it wouldn't have happened in Chicago. And one of the reasons was what's unusual about Phoenix or was unusual about Phoenix was how quickly um, agents could potentially get to a gun store when, when they knew that guns were being sold and so on. It, Phoenix was an unusual city at the time. And uh, in terms of the state law, it, it I, I, I don't remember all the details, so I, I don't want to give your listeners a, um, the, the wrong impression. I, I'm really right. just going on what I what I remember from quite a few years ago. But uh, it was the whole setup was unusual. Everything about it was quite odd, and it was not the way that we normally conducted business. But again, the, their intentions were good. It just somebody somewhere along the line should have said, you know what, this is just not a good idea. Let's not do this, and and that did not happen. So I, and I can't tell you exactly where that was. I just never studied the issue very carefully. So would you say that it was a, a, a mostly a bureaucratic uh, mental lapse? Uh, uh, you know, too many loopholes. Well, in, I, um, again, I I I don't know. I has I don't want to accuse you know uh, people no, no, when no, I no, don't no, it's, remember yeah, all it's the details. A, it's, it's not accusing. It's basically I'm just saying, in, 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 without accusing anyone, that yeah. since these agencies are so big, uh, there tends to be a, too much red tape or, or sometimes no re, red tape. I mean, how, how, how does the communication between agencies? I mean, there, there's been some blame made after 9-11 that, you know, the FBI didn't talk to the CIA and the CIA didn't talk to the uh, ATF or DEA. Do you, did you, in your experience working in law enforcement, working at ATF, did you find that there's too many, too bureaucratic? Well, th- those um, barriers do exist, but our job and one of the things I think 
one of the reasons I had a good career was I was usually able to, to get through those barriers. It's our job to get past those barriers. So um, is there, uh, can there be, you know, um, whether you want to call it jealousy between agencies or a lack of cooperation, sometimes that can exist and it does exist sometimes. At other times, we can work together extremely well. And a lot of that comes down to the individual agents assigned to a case. And I, I can tell you now again, 9/11 was it was an anomaly. It was this gigantic case. It, 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 so I don't want to use it really to compare it to everyday life. But there were even barriers within the FBI where where there were FBI agents saying one thing and supervisors weren't listening to them. But that can happen in a, any agency. That could have happened in ATF or DEA or your local police department. That's that's just human nature. So yes, these barriers can exist, much like they do in the military. I've often thought that uh, when people complain about uh, the lack of cooperation amongst federal agencies, for example, it's it's similar in, in wartime with the military units. The, the Army might not want to tell the Navy what they're doing, and the Navy might not want to tell the Air Force or whatever. But eventually, these things have to get worked out, and usually it's through the command structure. But when I was working a case, I was usually able to, to break through that by going to individual agents. So if one agent, if it wasn't working for me with one agent, I would find another agent where it would work. So right. the, it was my job as an agent on my case to find an answer, and I was good at doing that. And that's why I was able to make as many cases as I, I was because I just didn't let that stand in my way. I would go around that person or those people and if I had to go to another agency to get the answer I would do that and that's our job that's that's what we're supposed to do and the uh, it's I'll be perfectly blunt with you the more important the case was the more I would push if a case really was basically trivial or relatively unimportant I guess that's a better way to put it not trivial but relatively unimportant I might not fight as hard I, I wouldn't necessarily have the time but you know, any time where there was murder involved or the potential for people to be killed or it was a major gun case or a major bombing, I was tireless, and I would not stop until I could get past those obstacles, and I did. And that's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. Right. But it, seems, it, it also appears to me from the outside that politics mm-hmm. plays a, a huge role in a lot of these decisions. Would you agree with or would you disagree? I mean, that 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 tends to be a, another obstacle that, you know, the rank and file, like yourself and and and, and, and individuals that really have this true love and dedication for their for their country and for their job, politics gets in the way. Um, so when you say politics, do you mean internal office politics, or are you talking mm-hmm. about, um, you, you know? Well, uh, I'm talking about I'm talking about actual uh, directives coming from Washington. Well, uh, headquarters, you know, uh, headquarters is both the street agents, uh, you know, ally, and I, I don't know that they're ever necessarily our enemy, but it it can be headquarters can be a, a challenge because we might think as street agents, you know, that we need to do something, and headquarters might say no. For example. Um, On the other hand, um, ATF, street agents in the headquarters within ATF, things weren't perfect, but there were enough good agents at headquarters. Enough, They were bosses, but they'd also been good agents. And much like I was talking about before, you could usually figure out, you could find a way to find somebody in headquarters who could get things figured out for you. So um, not that you know, you had to play the game if if it was important enough. And yes, sometimes to street agents, we would look at directives coming from headquarters and we would say, what in the heck are they thinking? Yeah. Um, that, mm-hmm. that did happen. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. And again, the more unimportant an issue it was, we'd kind of laugh it off if we just kind of thought something was ridiculous and it, it, and it didn't pertain to cases, for example, or you know, some ridiculous thing about your car or whatever. It would be like, oh, okay, fine. Um, but uh, in the more important cases, 
usually there was a way to work it so that no matter how high up the, the chain of command we had to go, we could get what we needed. And I have to say, I certainly didn't, every boss I had was not a good boss, but I was always able to find a good boss somewhere up the chain when it was important enough. Right. And sometimes and I, it took a lot of work. Yeah, and, and again, it's, it, it, it does happen in, in a lot of different fields, different careers, but I, I just think that uh, from some experience that I've had dealing with the, the government bureaucrats in Washington, that it tends to be a lot of, not, not every uh, case, but there tends to be politics from Washington get, tends to get involved in, in, uh, in, make, in some of the decisions that law enforcement tends to, to make. Oh, sure. I mean, there's, there's no question about it that, that uh, you know, the, the broad spectrum decisions of uh, what any, whether it's ATF or DEA or FBI or whatever, uh, the, the emphasis on what type of crime that, that we might investigate can change from one um, administration to another. Uh, one administration might, might decide we're going to have an all-out push against uh, guns and, and another administration might come in and say, hey, we, need, we want uh, you to have a major push against crime in large cities. Um, so, yes, different administrations absolutely influence uh, the course of our events. But day in and day out, we, we, we make gun crimes uh, and, and bombs and, and arson crimes. That's day in and day out what ATF does and gang crime. Got it. Now, how was the uh, – I mean, it, it must be a really, really – you must be really proud of, of being the first women to, be, to earn the coveted Top Gun Award at the ATF Academy, uh, where you later worked as an instructor. That, that's a very, very special uh, award. Yeah, I have to say that was, uh, that was quite – quite uh, a fun day it was not I didn't expect it um in that we had four or five guys who were really excellent shots and I, I was a good shot and I'd been a very competitive athlete growing up um but we for example we had a guy who'd been a uh, played in the NFL once and he was a phenomenal athlete we had a couple guys who'd been uh, outstanding shooters when they were state and local police officers and going into that shoot I remember thinking whoever was going to win it was going to have to shoot a perfect target, a hundred out of a hundred. And on that, and at the time we shot what we would now not, not never carry as a duty weapon. We, we shot little 38 caliber Smith and Wesson revolvers, which is, it's a very fine handgun, but it's really considered underpowered now for law enforcement. Now we carry much uh, larger capacity, 40 caliber semi-automatic handguns but um at any rate we were we were shooting the six shot uh smith and wesson revolver and i uh i knew i was shooting well that day but i ended up dropping a point or two and and uh it turns out i won with a 98 and the guys could not have been any nicer and so it ended uh-huh. up being a very fun day and i didn't know how they'd take it everyone kind of stood around looking at each other and uh, the one guy who had played in the NFL was kind of the alpha male in our class and a super nice guy. He came up to me, you know, gave me a big hug and a smile and a congratulations, and boom, as soon as he did that, everybody else, you know, followed suit. So it turned out to be a really fun night, and we went to the bar, and I didn't have to buy any beers, and it was fun. <laughs> wow, wow. So now we are facing a crisis uh, that we have not faced when it comes to a, a global pandemic that uh, the World Health Organization uh, declared a couple of weeks ago. And I'm, I'm just curious, what is the role, if any, that um, ATF plays in a global pandemic? Well, I know that street, I've talked to a couple agents the last few days and, uh, the street agents have not yet been uh, what we would call cold, called out uh, to do anything or, or mobilized yet. They, they have been uh, given some information. But in the end, 
we are kind of, we're going to have to see how bad this gets, and we're going to have to see um, how much uh, assistance is needed from federal law enforcement. And if we did get called out to assist, it would be to help maintain public order. That's what everyone. Uh, that's the bottom line. No matter what your what law enforcement agency you're with, with the National Guard and so on and so forth. We have to maintain, the government has to maintain public order. And it's much easier to man, maintain public order than it is to restore public order. No one wants to allow riots or looting to happen, for example. And it's much better for our country to have law enforcement, and if need be, the National Guard. I, I don't think they've been called out in any city yet, but I'm, I'm sure they're on the alert. And well, just to maintain public order. Between you and I, it it definitely is definitely. I, I totally uh, agree with you, and I think uh, ATF um, will they'll, they'll they'll definitely have a, a role. That yeah. They have to. They have to. Well, now, yeah, and yeah. we would assist in. We would ass, we would not be the lead agency. We would be assigned to. I, I'm not exactly sure who would be the lead agency. Um, what what federal agency would would take the lead because this is such an unusual situation, but we would be assigned. We would take our assignment, the street agents, and they would say we want you to secure a, a certain location, for example, and that's what our agents would would do. Or we want you to uh, uh, help assure safety of a, a supply line, whatever it might be, for example. And whatever we were assigned to do, we would cooperate at, at this point. It would all be about cooperation between federal agencies and state federal. local agencies. So is, is, is that the time when all the federal agents, agencies really come together? Oh, yeah, they have to. It's not, and it's not a choice. Um, and the issue becomes who is the lead agency and how competent are they? And they, whoever is going to be the lead agency, and I think that really is going to depend on what happens. I think it's going to depend on how bad it gets. Is, you know, they have to make sure that that uh, each agency knows what their assignments are, and and then we, you know, AT, ATF, each agency will be able to execute their assignment. But at that point, we are all in this together. Absolutely. Yeah, and we will. We, without doubt, we will do what we need to do. Right. So you you wouldn't be involved in the actual uh, aspect of of you you'll be there for basically law and order. Yes, I would think so. I mean, it it would be again with the overarching plan. It would be a large scale plan, all based on maintaining public order in wherever agents are assigned to be. Uh, so, you know, it, it's possible that agents could, could leave a smaller city and be assigned to a, a larger city for a certain amount of time. Um, and again, I, I know that there are plans in headquarters. I know there are people working on this and planning it in headquarters. It's not yet on the street yet to the ATF agents, and I don't know if it will be, but if it is, uh, we will absolutely do whatever we are assigned to do and, and take care of things. Now, you, you uh, ATF is under the Department of Justice, right? Yes, now we are. Yes, after 9/11, when the the Homeland Security uh, Act came into being, we moved from the Department of the Treasury to the Department of Justice. So, um, and again, this is such an unusual situation. I I, I don't know what the lead agency would be, but every agency, right. not just ATF, but every agency will do what they're assigned to do in a situation like this. And how is that, how, how is that transition from the Department of Treasury to the Department of Justice? Uh, was that a smooth transition, transition or, yes. or, or, yeah. Yeah, for, for the street agents, uh, you're, you're about the third or fourth person I've talked to inter who's interviewed me have asked that. And for the street ah. agent, it really was uh, almost seamless. I know at headquarters, for them, it, it was a, a paperwork pain in the neck 
you know, they, and they also started reporting to different people. So they're, they're, they used to report to people at the Department of Treasury. Well, now they reported to people at the Department of Justice. So there were, you know, there were um, changes to be made in headquarters. But for the most part, for your average street agents, it really didn't affect us too much. Got it. If you were to advise uh, someone who would be interested in joining law enforcement, and uh, especially the ATF, what would be your recommendation? Just someone coming out of college? Um, well, uh, probably first, you, you usually need to have a job first before you're hired on with any federal agency. Very rarely will they hire a what I would consider at this point in my life a kid right out of college. You usually have to work for it because that way, uh, unless perhaps you've had extensive experience with the military, because you need to have a track record as an, a, right. as an adult in employment. But um, for a young person who wants to, to come on with ATF, uh, yeah. it, it's a very uh, it's a demanding job. It can be a great job. It can also be a pain in the neck, uh, like any job. Um, you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to work hard if you want to be successful. But it's really very much uh, also about getting along with people and playing to your strengths. So uh, try to, you know, to to you know be willing to learn from from other agents who have been around the block. Uh, you know, if you want to be an ATF agent, I, I wouldn't just, um, I, I guess I would say, be committed, be ready to work hard, be willing to learn, be flexible, and it can be a fantastic career. Yes, because it's definitely, uh, I would I would, I would, believe that someone coming out of college who actually has worked and has a career, it would be a step up being part of a, of a great agency like uh, ATF or, you know, the FBI or CIA? Generally speaking, federal agencies are considered um, the, the most desirable to work for. They, they have pluses and minuses, though. Um, we tend to be paid the most, uh, for example, uh, just kind of a, that's a general statement across the board. I, I imagine New York City police officers might be more well-paid. I, I don't know that for a fact, but on the other hand, there are drawbacks. You know, as part of a federal agency, you can be transferred anywhere at any time, and you have no recourse. So you might be very happy living with your family in Los Angeles, and you might walk into the office one day, and they said, guess what? Tomorrow or, you know, in two weeks, you have to report and move to New York City. Uh, that doesn't happen too often, but, boy, it certainly can happen, and it can happen as a punishment. Um, so... There are pluses and minuses to federal law enforcement, just like there are to state and local law enforcement. Um, but I, for me, I liked working the bomb and arson cases the most. I liked the complexity. Um, we have a larger jurisdiction than most state and local agencies do. Um, but I, I know that there are street coppers who would never have switched. I know there were, you know, for example, some Chicago street coppers who would never have wanted to be a federal agent. They thought, you know, no way. Well, I think Chicago PD has their hands full already in the South Side. Yeah, yeah, Chicago <laughs> PD. They uh, there's lots lots of action in Chicago. If you're a Chicago copper, you're uh, you, you stay on your toes. There's no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I want to. Uh, if you want to give your website, give any a, any and promote your book. Which is uh, sure. we'll we'll, we'll definitely uh, promote it on on this um, website again. Uh, let me just before you do that, we have to um, basically say that this show is uh, show sponsors but uh, by Students for a Better Future, Doreen Ann, who is our show writer, and she's uh, without her we wouldn't have the show. So thank thank you, Doreen. All right. Um, Cynthia, just go ahead and, and, and promote your your book and, 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 and your website. So if anyone is interested, they can go there. Uh, well, the name of the book is Boots in the Ashes, Busting Bombers, Arsonists, and Outlaws as a Trailblazing Female ATF Agent. 
And my name is Cynthia Beebe, that's B-E-E-B-E, and that's my website, which is www.cynthiabeebe.com. And my um, social media is at Cynthia Beebe 4, which is the number 4, at Cynthia Beebe 4. And you can buy the book online um, through Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and it's at uh, Barnes & Nobles bookstores and other bookstores as well. And by the way, also, I, I forgot to mention, your cases have been chronicled in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Ladies Home Journal, and you have been, you've been covering ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, and the Cisco and Falzone Hour, and 48 Hours. So uh, you've got a great track record. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Definitely. So um, we just have a couple minutes more to go. How do you see uh, the future of ATF in regards to promoting women, uh, minorities, and um, just overall the, the future of the ATF? Well, um, there is still uh, it is still a struggle within um, all federal law enforcement agencies for hiring and promoting women in particular. Um, there was a large uh, uh, report done by the Office of the Inspector General in, the, in 2018, so just a couple of years ago, saying that um, only 16% of federal law enforcement uh, in the Department of Justice agents were women, and, and of those 16%, they struggled to be promoted, and they uh, there were an unusual number of complaints about, you know, uh, being uh, discriminated against because of their gender. So, having said that. 16% is a lot more than when I came on uh, 30 years ago, 30-plus years ago. Um, but it is still a battle, and based on the report that did come up by the Inspector General's office, um, the White House said that they were going to work to try to improve those numbers. So I think it's just going to be a long, long-lasting process, and it's just something that we will continue to work on over time. And... Um, we are getting there, and we'll keep working on it, and uh, that's, all, that's true with minorities as well. But there is progress. It's just been quite slow. So on this show, basically, um, I try not to get political uh, with some of my guests, but I'm going to try and do it a little bit different today. <laughs> so, of, of, of the administrations, in your experience with the ATF, which administration, which party tends to be more favorable to the ATF when it comes to funding and being supportive? Um, you know, I the, that's uh, that's a. I don't want to put you in the spot. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to put you in the spot if if if, if, you, if you don't. But I mean, if you don't, but I mean, you don't have to save, uh, you know, did you feel that there was more funding coming during a certain period of time? You can phrase it, phrase it that way without mentioning. You know, I, I really, um, I, every different administration there, there would be kind of ebbs and flows, but it, from my, you know, as a street agent, we were allowed to do our work. There was never okay. a time when when we did not have the resources we needed to do our work. I never felt, you know, that I, I couldn't, if I had to fly to another city to do an interview that was crucial to a major investigation, I could get funding. I mean, um, so for me, affecting my life as a street agent, there was never any certain administration, whether Republican or Democrat, where I felt, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to be able to catch this bad guy because, you know, a certain person's in the White House. I never felt that. Okay. And I'm, I'm sure that, you know, uh, at, a, at a much higher level than mine, you, you know, in the, the upper reaches of ATF headquarters, of federal law enforcement headquarters, they probably did have a, a fairly clear-cut idea. But for me as a street agent, I was always able to do my work, and okay. I, so that was important. Well, I, I want to extend my appreciation for you taking time to um, come on, on the Cisco and Falzone Hour. And we look forward to uh, having you again. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate being here. I, I really enjoyed myself and had a good time. Thank you. All right. Have a great evening. Cynthia Beebe, uh, author of Boots in the Ashes, Busting Bombers, Arsonist Outlaws as a Trailblazing Female ATF Agent. Thank you again. And thank you. Have a nice evening. Uh, uh, you too. So uh, in the meantime, next week we'll have another exciting guest on the Cisco and Falzone Hour, and we'll keep you updated on the latest with the coronavirus. And I think it's going to be a very, very demanding next couple of weeks. But as a country, we'll get through. We're resilient, and we will overcome. God bless America, and we got to stick together because we'll beat the coronavirus. Have a good evening. Good night. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.